Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Rick Martinez. I am a cookbook author and lover of all things sweet and spicy. And I am currently living in beautiful, sunny Mazatlan, Mexico. And I'm Carla Lolly Music. I'm also a cookbook author, professionally trained chef, and video host based in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. And we've been solving and laughing our way through food problems together for more than a decade in test kitchens, videos, and magazines. Has it truly been more than a decade? I don't know why I said that. <laughs> it's like, I, I can't even deal. You look like a million bucks. Oh my God, you look fabulous. That skin, the hair. <laughs> Ever since we've known each other, we've worked together to improve each other's recipes, solve cooking conundrums, and come up with delicious new ideas. And now we're doing it here on Borderline Salty, the show where we take your calls, boost your confidence, and make you a better, smarter, happier cook. I'm happier since I knew you. Oh, I'm so much happier since I knew you. Today, we're getting into the allium question dissecting authenticity, and weighing in on custard toast. But before we get into all that, we're going to kick the show off today the way we will kick the show off every week, and that is with something good. So Rick, tell me something good. Well, you know what's actually beyond good, Carla? Tell me. This podcast. It's finally (gasps) here. We have been working on this podcast for, well, you've been working on it for years. I I came on about a year ago, and it has been one of the joys in my life. Like, no matter what is happening out there in the universe, I know that I am going to laugh my face off and try really hard to make you laugh. That's what I was going to say. I think, like, the... The thing that blows me away about making this podcast with you is like how joyful it is, how fun it is. The fact that you moved to Mexico and I see you now more than like ever (laughs) (laughs) is also amazing. And it's like our time to be together. Just amazing. So it is, as you said, it is, is better than good. It's great. And I am happy to be called Mama and Food Daddy, so. (laughs) (laughs) so true. (laughs) I know people are like, my internet mom and dad are making a podcast. I know. Who knew that we would become America's Mom and Food Dad? (laughs) But, you know, like, actually, so a a smaller thing that happened yesterday is I cooked for a group of friends. And, you know, they're they're from here in Mazatlan. Well, actually, a couple of them were from uh, Guadalajara. But I 
cooked something. And one of the things that I love doing is surprising Mexicans who have grown up here, have grown up with mm -hmm. the cuisine. And when I can actually present something that is not only new, but something that just, you see that look. And I, I know you know this look. It's that look when someone takes a bite of food and it's just utter and pure joy mm -hmm. that just like goes across their face. And you know that they love what they're eating. They can't even verbalize it because they just are <laughs> shoveling more food into their into their mouths. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is a successful dish at that moment. And it's just so gratifying and it made me so happy. That is truly the ultimate validation. Exactly. I mean, that's why that's why I cook. I just literally for that reaction. But what is good with you? Well, my something good is extremely recent, like happened in the last 20 minutes, in fact. <laughs> this morning, I was working on something else and kind of took longer than I should have. And I need to roast a couple chickens because we're going away with friends later today. And I want to bring dinner so that when, when we get where we're going, we don't have to start cooking. And I managed to spatchcock flatten, season two chickens, not one, but two, and get them in the oven in 14 minutes. Stop it. Wait. <laughs> I'm really proud of myself. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Wow. Got it done before noon. It was still a.m. That is insane. Oh, my God. The delicious aromas of roast chicken are wafting through the air. So I feel very accomplished. I could just lie back down for the rest of the day and feel like my... <laughs> to-do list was done. That pales in comparison to the wafting smell of my yogurt right next to me. So <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> it's time to answer some of our caller questions. Hi, Rick and Carla. This is Deandrea, and I have a question for you about pancakes. I love pancakes. I typically make them every Saturday, and I'm wondering, do you have any tips on how to flip pancakes properly so that you don't have that spillage, that you sort of maintain your perfect circle. Am I flipping too soon? Can't wait to hear your response. Thanks. So this is the perfect question for you. You you and Cosmo are like the pancake dynamic duo. I think I've been making pancakes every weekend for my younger child, Cosmo, for going on nine years now. Oh, my God. I make a lot of pancakes on a lot of Saturdays. And so there's a recipe in Where Cooking Begins called Cosmo's Power Pancakes, which was developed <laughs> with him, for him. <laughs> and essentially, it's just because he was like a total pancake monster, and he has such a sweet tooth. So it was like, is it about the pancake? Is it about the maple syrup? You know, hard to tell. But instead of not giving the kid pancakes, because, like, I just come from a place where, like, loving food is good, right? We want to, mm -hmm. like, keep that going for as long as possible and have this healthy relationship with food being an important and wonderful source of pleasure and sustenance in your life. But I was like, how can I push it a little bit so that there's a little bit more protein, maybe a little bit more fiber, maybe things that are keeping keep him fuller longer? So I just started adding, like, seeds and some whole wheat flour and it's got chia seeds and flax meal hemp hearts, you know, sunflower, oats, whatever added to it. Delicious. We all still eat them. So now when you were making them, were they perfect circles or do you even worry about such things? No, they're definitely not perfect circles. And 
For me, it was figuring out the texture of the batter than it was like what shape it was once it got onto the griddle. But one trick for a round pancake, though, that I have learned is like instead of trying to pour it into a circle, like if you just pour the batter straight down, where it hits, it will like spread out into a circle on its own because something with physics. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unclear. (laughs) So I used to work at ABC Kitchen brunch for whatever (laughs) god-awful reason other than the the chef hated me. Um, But I remember, you know, on saute, one of the, besides the eggs cooked to temperature, that's another, that's another episode. Um, (laughs) I also had the, the fortune of being able to make everyone on Saturday and Sunday in downtown New York pancakes. And the trick that I learned is you pour the the pancake batter out, and then with the bottom of the rounded part of the ladle, you just sort of lightly tap and then swirl, but just to kind of push the the batter out from the center, because it's going to want to pile up in the center. So if you push it out, then it'll like sort of spread gently into a perfect circle, because as we all know, during brunch, people want perfectly circular pancakes. So one thing I've also learned from making pancakes for Cosmo and then, you know, eventually this child wants to flip the pancake. Like, that's like half of, you know, I want to flip the pancake. And you're like, no, kid, you're not old enough. You can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) To be like, yes, climb up on the stepladder and like, let's do this. And from watching and teaching both, both of these children about flipping pancakes, the first instinct I think we have as humans is, and not in general, but like with flipping pancakes, <laughs> I think our first instinct is <laughs> it's like, I need to get to the nipple. That's really the first instinct. <laughs> but later, the first instinct. <laughs> after that. <laughs> Shortly after that, you're like, I need to flip a pancake pretty soon. And the first time someone flips a pancake, they want to flip it like left or right, like they're flipping the page of a book, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens when you do that is in the kind of like tilting to go to the left, that's when things can get kind of messy. So when you're flipping a pancake, I've learned to like pick it up and then turn it over as you put it back down exactly where it was. So instead of, you know, going from like east to west with it, just go like up. And over. I think people get really scared of that. And I always think of of Julia Child. And, you know, and she talked about there was an episode where she was making, I I think it was either an omelet or a frittata or something like that. And and she talked about having the courage of your convictions and when you're flipping. And you just have to like, you have to commit to it and then just yes. do it. A hundred percent. And if it doesn't work out, her res- famous response is she like flips it and potato and egg go everywhere. She just picks it up off the counter, sticks it back in the pan, and arranges it. And she's like, and if it doesn't work out, who's to know? (laughs) Yeah. You know who doesn't care if the pancake's round or not? Like, anyone that you're bringing a pancake to. They're just psyched. Right. Unless they're a paying customer, then fuck Unless they're a customer at ABC. (laughs) (laughs) Next caller, please. 
Hi, um, my name's Brittany. I guess my question was, what do you guys do with like the very last wilty bit of something? Almost overripe avocado, or just like, a little bit of like wilty parsley in your fridge. You know, like nextovers are great, but what about just those little last bits that you can't find anything to do with? This is a great question, and it's something that I do almost every week because if I'm shooting, usually every shoot is like a dish that is completely unrelated to the other one and completely different. And so at the end of the week, I have a refrigerator full of all the remnants of all those things that don't go together. And what I normally do is just literally throw everything, those couple of last random stalks of celery, that odd carrot, the half of a chili poblano, and just throw it in a pot of water and make soup. And it's very, very comforting. It's minimal effort. All I have to do is chop whatever's in there. And you can use whatever herbs you have left over. Any wilting greens uh, will just like blend into the soup. And I don't have to think about it. All I do is put it in water, add salt, and let it cook. Oh, there's nothing more satisfying than like finishing those little bits up. Yeah. Oh, love that. Yeah, I do something similar like if I don't have actual things that are worth even putting back in the fridge, I'll keep a kind of bag in the freezer with little aromatics like leek tops or my mushroom scraps or chicken bones and just kind of keep those building up in a freezer bag. And then eventually I'll make a big pot of stock, mm. which then like you pay it forward and could make soup from it or cook grains in it. Another thing, I mean, it kind of depends what the leftovers are. And Brittany did refer to nextovers, which like we've all been there. But a lot of times I do this on Monday night if we've had a big weekend of cooking and there's there's leftover things that are good, but there's not quite enough to go around the whole table for our family of four. Mm -hmm. I will declare that it is picnic dinner. And that just means that like the last butt of the steak that didn't get finished, the one chicken thigh that's left over, all of those things like end up on a big board in the middle of the table, bread and butter. Oh. I'll try to make a big salad. And then if you put like mustard and <laughs> mayonnaise out with it, sometimes you can make it into a sandwich. Like I'll make a salad sandwich and just stick whatever in there. So that's another good way if you live with other people to just call it, call it something else. You know, it's all marketing. Borderline Salty, please hold. Line two, you're on. Hi, this is John Darby. My conundrum is when a recipe calls for one shallot, what does that mean? Does that mean one lobe of this shallot? Does it mean both lobes? Is it two tablespoons? Is it four? No one ever says. That's the conundrum. Truly the existential question of our times. I mean, I, I relate so much to this question because I remember like when I first started working in food and, and testing recipes that would just bug the shit out of me. Sometimes they're like the size of my fist. Sometimes they're like two lobes. Sometimes it's just one. Yeah. Sometimes like the lobes are like splitting apart, like a, like a splitting atom. <laughs> like, what the hell? What I really, what I really hate in a recipe is when it calls for like, like he said, two tablespoons of a chopped shallot. That is so rude. First of all, you have to be chopping the shallot and then measure it and be like, oh, no, I guess I have to chop a little more. Like, that's irresponsible recipe writing. I don't subscribe. And then what the hell am I supposed to do with that, like, quarter bit of, like, partially chopped shallot? That's dumb. I think this is, like, PSA. Anything under the skin of that shallot is one shallot. So if you open up the shallot and there's two lobes that are kind of, like, 
squinched in there together. Right. It's still a shallot. Right. I agree. It's just a shallot that happened to have two lobes. And I also think that you you should, you know, as you're cooking this, you should just think about, okay, what is it that you are actually making? So, for example, if you were making a salad dressing and you have an unusually large shallot with two giant lobes and the recipe calls for one shallot, like, right. you know, like, do you really want that giant shallot in your salad dressing? Right. Like, is that— You're not going to follow blindly. Yeah. So I think, you know, yeah. I mean, you could actually then just use maybe a quarter of the shallot and then freeze the rest mm-hmm. and put it in your in your little stock bags. And then, you know, you can make stock with that at right. a later date. But, yeah, like, so just—because it is, it is actually—it's not only annoying— when you have a recipe that doesn't call for a specific size, but it is also annoying when you go to the grocery store one week and you have gigantic shallots, and yeah. then the next week you go and they're like the size of a garlic clove. Yeah. Size matters. <laughs> <laughs> Preach. Carla, the moment has come. We have a live caller. Yay! Hi, Gianna. Hi. This is exciting. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We're so excited to chat with you, Gianna. Yeah, so nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I've been watching you guys for, like, four years, like, when I just started getting into cooking. So, especially, like, Rick with, like, the Mexican cooking. And thank you. So, my question is, what scares me about cooking is, like, I want to figure out how to cook authentic Mexican food correctly. Yeah. Especially, like, when it, like, applies to people who don't have access to the authentic ingredients that Mexican food can sometimes require. I I think that's a great question, and I wanted to talk about this because it's something that I struggled with also. And what I found being here and traveling around Mexico is... There are literally, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of ways to make every single dish, every single salsa. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I live in Mazatlan. If I walk around my block and I ask people, I need you to make carnitas. And so five people come over to my house and make carnitas. Every single carnita will be completely different. And to me, that's the beauty of cooking is that people add their own sasson, their own creativity and flair and passion to a dish. So, you know, there are certain things that are normally present and certain things like Mexican chiles, which definitely add the the signature flavor. But that belief that there is a correct way to make Mexican food, or honestly, I think it also applies to other cultures as well, I think that is an American construct. It's something that a lot of times Mexican-Americans feel like we have to do it this one way because that's the way, that's the only way it can be done. And it's just not, it's not true. Yeah, I feel like that just arises because, like, my mom was an immigrant and, like, I grew up here and I grew up very much American and, like, the cooking kind of skipped a generation because... My abuelita did all the cooking. We call her Ita for short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, and so my mom didn't want to be forced into those same gender roles that my Ita was. Mm. So she never cooked. And I got into it for fun because I wanted to. Like, I feel like it's a good life skill. But 
I just feel so much pressure to carry on the Mexican culture for my whole family mm -hmm. because none of them cook except for me. Right, right. I'm curious, like, what, what kind of dishes did she make that you loved and, and what do you want to be making? Well, she has her own version of mole, which is just so delicious. That's definitely one that scares me a lot. And also abondigas. And I can say this as a blanket statement. She makes the best abondigas in the world. Um, and she has like a recipe book. And it's getting passed down to me when she passes. So like I'm just like trying to get the skills, you know. I would highly recommend recording her. Certainly voice, but if you can get her to do video as well. Well, that's the best. And I don't want to be, I don't want to, I don't want to like turn this conversation down, but... My um, my mother loved Thanksgiving, and I I was in culinary school at the time, and um, I wasn't going to be able to go home for Thanksgiving that year. And then I was like, this is dumb. I'm not going to stay in New York by myself for Thanksgiving. And so I called my mom, and I was like, okay, I got a flight. I'm going to go home. I'm not going to be home until Friday after Thanksgiving. Can we move Thanksgiving? She's like, totally fine. I get home, and I was like, all right, I'm going to record you making Thanksgiving. And she was like, no, 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 no. And she hated it. And she was so mad at me. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not asking you, I'm just going to do it. And so I recorded her, you know, making every single dish. I wrote everything that she did down. How do you do this? What did your mom do? All of those things. That was her last Thanksgiving. That is an amazing story. That is, I'm so glad you got to do that. If I, if I hadn't done that, like all of those recipes would have been gone. Mm, yeah. So my first piece of advice is make the albondigas together with your abuelita. Record it, and at the very least, take really great notes. And I'm gonna send you, I'm gonna send you a recipe for a mole sencillo, a simple mole. So it's a ten ingredient mole, and to me, the point of that recipe is really to learn the technique which are going to produce those flavors that you would find in Mexico. The ingredients are really secondary, and, and I think you should choose them based on what you have available, what you can afford, and what you actually just like eating. Yeah, I think there's nothing less valid or delicious or welcomed about, you know, doing it your way. You have the most important part of this, which is like, you have a love and a desire to cook that is inspired by eating all of this amazing, delicious food. And there's nothing like more pure and perfect than that. You know, you can't really go wrong. Like when your desire starts from that place and when you have an amazing model and, a, and an inspiration. Carla, that is so incredibly important. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. I think it's really important to take the pressure off of yourself. And I think a lot of times, you know, for me personally, I I struggle with this, right? Like, am I am I being too assimilated? Am I being am I being respectful to my culture and my heritage? And when you start thinking about your food in terms of those lines, it's it's very rigid. It's very hard. And for me, it takes the joy out of the food. It takes the joy out of the cooking. I will definitely cook that recipe as soon as I can. Thank you so much. And thank you, Rick, for like opening up about your story. So nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And come to Mexico. I want to so bad. <laughs> I will one of these days. 
This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The time has come, but before we go, it's time for one of our borderline salty game shows. Rad fad or bad fad? This is a game where Carla shows me one of her crazy new internet things, and I decide whether, well, honestly, whether I like it or not, whether it's rad or bad. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Obs. We're going to watch the viral custard toast method. Oh, I love custard toast. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> spoiler alert. If you were expecting to see Taiwanese custard toast, you may be a little disappointed. Today, I tried the viral custard toast. You're going to need bread, Greek yogurt, eggs, fruit, and maple syrup. Add together all the ingredients on the screen, optional lemon zest and juice, and give it a whisk. Flatten your bread and pour it on in. Top with your favorite fruit. I did a lemon blueberry toast. Air fry at 350 for 12 minutes. Hope you enjoy. All right, so let's rewind for a second. This video goes very fast, but let me just rewind quickly and let you know what the viewer is seeing. She just combined the egg, the yogurt, lemon zest, and maple syrup, mixes that up in a little bowl, then presses down her bread, which is not the typical thick toast you would expect to see, adds the mixture, puts some berries on top, puts everything into the air fryer, and then takes it out and it's beautifully golden brown. Okay, I'm going to start by saying I love custard toast. What this person made, I mean, I guess technically is a custard, but it's the layering thing, honestly, that bothers me. Mm -hmm. To me, what I love about custard toast is that the custard and the bread are fused together. It is like the most perfect French toast. 
Like, you soak the bread, and the custard is inside. Right. It can barely hold its shape because it's filled with that custard. And then I also have a problem with, like, the squishing the bread down. To make a little divot. Right. And to me, like, the, the beauty of custard toast is it, the toast shouldn't be a vehicle for the custard. They should be together, uh-huh, fused. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Gotcha. So you're just creating this, like, flat layer of squished bread and then this yogurt egg thing on top. That seems very unpleasant. Where I've had it, uh, like Winston Bakery has like an amazing custard toast. Um, you brulee sugar over the top, so you get like almost like a creme brulee vibe going, and it's just oh. All right. So has the jury uh, finalized their deliberations in this case? Yes, we have, Your Honor. <laughs> we find custard toast rad. We find custard toast, as depicted by TikTok, bad. If you are loving this trend, we love you back. But if you want to make a more classic version of Taiwanese custard toast, there's a link to a great video by Angel Wong's Kitchen in the show notes. That's it for this week's episode of Borderline Salty. But don't you worry, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can find recipes and recommendations from this week's episode in our show notes. Check it out. If you have a question or a fear you want us to help you through, you can always leave us a voicemail at 833-433-FOOD. That's 833-433-3663. Borderline Salty is an original production by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Rick Martinez. And I'm Carla Lally Music. You can find links to our work in the show notes for this episode. Natalie Brennan is our lead producer. Janelle Anderson is our producer. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. Our assistant producer is Mari Orozco. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Mixing and engineering by Davy Sumner and Jason Richards. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Original music from our very own Raj Makija. Additional music from Vincent Vega, Spring Gang, and Glovebox, courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street are provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson De Roche. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Special thanks to Justine Daum and Kat Aaron. We appreciate Beandria, Brittany, John, and Gianna for calling in this week. And thanks to you for listening. Talk to you next week.